Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Today on the show, we're going to be discussing, it's a subject that we've discussed a little bit in the past when we did an episode called, it was something about doubt, right? Uh, The utility of doubt was what that was called. And we're going to be discussing doubt this time as well, but more from the perspective of healthy skepticism, right, Chris? That's right. And we're together. Yeah, yeah. Sharing the same space. This is fun. Yeah. Yeah. So Chris made his way over to Heber City and we went to dinner today. We watched my son's soccer game and then... uh, That was fun. We're going to record an episode and then he's going to jump right on with Ben. That one will be remote. By Skype. Yeah, Yeah. by Skype um, to record Latter-day Peace Studies. Come follow me. So before they get off and do that, we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of skepticism. Now, you know, in the past on that other episode, we spoke about how... And it was just right after... President Nelson gave his talk, the one where he said, don't rehearse your doubts with doubters. And I think what we tried to do in that last episode was tease that out a bit, uh, add some nuance to it. And essentially, we, we kind of came to one of the conclusions of that uh, episode was that we decided there's a difference between the utility of doubt itself and being a doubter. Right. Someone who is like a constant cynic, who's buried in cynicism and has this negative bent on everything they do. So, but doubt itself, as we've actually come to learn a lot recently, there's, there's a lot of momentum behind this idea that doubt has utility itself, that we don't want to get mired in it. We don't want that to be our heuristic, but it can be useful, right? So much so that here we are talking about it again. Again. We have something more to say about it. Yeah. Yeah. So to start off with, let's let's kind of take this backwards. You you love Al-Ghazali. You know, you introduced me to him a while back and I've, I've fallen in love with him as well. He's just awesome philosopher, uh, Sufi mystic, someone that inspired a lot of the great Western philosophical thinkers, including Rene Descartes, right? Well, I'm not sure. You know, the, it, it, if you compare Al-Ghazali and Descartes, you know, the meditations of Descartes with the deliverance from error, or sometimes it's translated the deliverer from error, they look a lot alike. You'd swear Al- Descartes must have read Al-Ghazali, but we don't know. There's yeah. just, we just, we, I don't know if we can know. I know I've even been in touch with Professor Frank Griffel at Yale. Uh, back when I was an undergraduate student, I wrote a paper on this. I emailed him. My paper is actually, it's on my blog and it's actually gotten a lot of, uh, a lot of comments from all over the world. It's a, it's a subject that people find interesting is did Descartes read Al-Ghazali? But I think listeners may be more familiar with Descartes. Maybe start there at Descartes' meditations. Okay, so what is the subject matter, the famous, you know, conclusions that come out of Descartes' meditations? I think, therefore, I am. Cogito ergo sum, right? And, and so why is, that, why is that important? Let's tease that out a little bit. Why, why is I think, therefore, I am an important statement? 
Yeah, so what's what's Dick Hart up to, like Al-Ghazali earlier? You know, he's trying to figure out if he can find some source of knowledge or even some piece of knowledge that he can be sure about. Some objective reality. Some, yeah, something that he can be sure that he knows. This is an epistemological uh, journey, right, of, of discovery. And so what he's going to do is he's going to use methodological doubt. And I think that's kind of what we're here to talk about, right? Yeah. Is the idea of using doubt methodologically, which again makes it a tool. That means I can take it off the shelf. I don't have to be a doubter. I don't have to live in doubt. I can just take it off the shelf, put it to use as a tool, and then put it back on the shelf like any other tool. And so Descartes sits down and he says, okay, what can I be sure of? So he he works deductively, right? Through almost stripping away the things that he think could be deceived, like the five senses, and trying to get to something that is is true just by virtue of the fact that it exists in his mind, right? He's having thoughts. And the very fact that he's having thoughts means that he exists in some way, whether it's the, the physical way he's or the, thinking or the thing. spiritual way or whatever. He is thinking. And so he concludes from that, this epistemological truth that he exists. Right. And so he says, I think, therefore I am. Now, of course, he does split us in a sense. And we talk about non-dualism a lot. And this is very much dualistic. You know, he's now split the, the, the mind from the body. Right. We, this is what we call Cartesian dualism. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But what he's looking for is he's looking for what he calls clear and distinct knowledge. Backing up to Al-Ghazali, who's doing this. So that's in the 1500s. Al-Ghazali's doing this. He died in 1111. So he's doing it earlier. And he's Was, was it the thing. 1600s? I think it might have been the 1600s with Descartes. I thought it was the 1500s. So he's, he's doing this. Al-Ghazali's doing it earlier. And Al-Ghazali, by the way, is one of the acknowledged intellectual influences of St. Thomas Aquinas, right, in the Catholic tradition. And in the, I should say in the Western tradition. And even, you know, to say that it, it implies somehow that Islamic philosophy isn't Western, which it is. Islamic philosophy is Western, and Western philosophy owes a great debt to Islamic philosophy. So they're really kind of one in the same tradition. We're not talking about Asian philosophy here. We're talking about Western philosophy all the way around. So Al-Ghazali, he is taking the same approach. He wants to say, let me look at the sources. I like putting it this way, the sources of knowledge that there are. And so he looks at the philosophers with their demonstrative proofs. He looks at the theologians with their dialectic proofs. He looks at the Gnostics and he looks at the Sufis and that the Sufis, he finds, ultimately, have the most sure knowledge. Why? Because it comes straight from their own experience of God. They have an experience of God. And so that's a lot like, uh, like Descartes' clear and distinct knowledge, something that's direct, that it's not mediated in any way by the senses or by arguments or logic or di- dialectic, just a direct experience of God. Yeah, and, you know, Descartes is appealing to personal experience when he says that he has this clear and distinct knowledge because, obviously, he's not having this on behalf of the whole human race. He's having it on his own behalf. This is, this is René Descartes speaking for himself, that I had a clear and distinct impression, and from that impression, I made this conclusion that I think, therefore, I am. And so it's no different than speaking, uh, than, than Al-Ghazali's uh, quote that the only true knowledge is direct experience of God. And, and so that, that's really directly related to each other. 
Yeah, there's something else I'd like to add because we've talked about the alchemy of happiness on the podcast is to say that Al-Ghazali, he's going to say that the way that we get to have that direct experience, this is where the alchemy comes in, is that we actually have to do the work to purify our hearts to have access to the possibility of that experience. And we spent some time on that speaking, not only in that episode on the alchemy of happiness, but in, in our episode on the exoteric and the esoteric. There's the seeker, the person who wants that inner confirmation or knowledge or direct experience with God. And there's the seeking, which is the exoteric work of, of, seek, of the seeker, right? So to distance ourselves just a little bit from what we might call Cartesian philosophy, because we're not, we're not necessarily going to dive into this, this bifurcation that is created between the mind and the body or anything like that. All we're, all we're appealing to is the methodology that they used and that can be useful for us as well, which is sort of doubting our senses, doubting the things that we think are, are true, that we possibly could be deceived about to appeal to things that are more true. And, and direct experience is definitely one of those. Yeah. And, and when we say this, you know, it, there could be things that we've been taught that we shouldn't doubt or that we that sh- yeah that can't be doubted or shouldn't be doubted we can doubt those things too in the sense that and this is where i think an explanation of what we mean by methodological doubt comes into play and that is that we're talking about using skepticism again as a tool it's to to consider the possibility that right so here's this this belief that we have it's examining it. It really is just examining it, looking at it more closely, not taking it for granted, not following along, not, li- not having a borrowed testimony, for example. This is a thing, right, that you have to have your own testimony, not taking something on someone else's authority because of their position or something like that. What would Brigham Young say about that? Now, he was constantly appealing to individual revelation to either confirm or deny truths that he believed he was teaching from the pulpit. I was reading something from him the other day that said, I would never intentionally lead you astray. That's not what I'm trying to do. And I don't believe anything that I've taught would lead you astray. But that doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. It's like you still need to go out and figure this out for yourself. And the worst thing that would happen is you just whole cloth accept everything that I tell you from the pulpit without any examination. That's the last thing a seeker should do. And I would argue that even if someone doesn't uh, intend to deceive us or mislead us in any way, we can be deceived or misled not by anything they even said, but how, but by the way we receive it. Mm-hmm. We can receive something different than what was intended. And so we, so it's interesting because you, you heard people say things like, well, uh, what was said was very clear. Or what I read was very clear. It's It's right there in black and white. And yet we know that People read things differently, whether they're reading a room or reading a text or reading a speech, they read things differently. Yeah, I mean, one phenomenon that we all run into if you are in business at all or any kind of professional setting is that time when you receive an email and you have a difficult time reading the tone because it's separated from the, the actual verbal cues that would normally come with a dialogue. And misreading that to the point where either you feel offended or you take it to mean something that it doesn't mean, and then it's a whole thing, right? So that's that's kind of, and then anytime you have a hierarchical organization, there's always levels of filtering that happen. So the the prime authority, let's say the prophet in, in this case, might say something from the pulpit, and then that gets filtered down through an area authority, through a state president, a bishopric, and so on and so forth, all the way down the line. And by the time it gets to you, 
it may not resemble exactly what the intent was of the person delivering it. And so this can even happen in, a, in you know, modern times today when we're not even reading like canonized scripture or anything, but it happens all the time. And if that person who delivers their interpretation to you happens to be a level or two above you, so to speak, in the hierarchy, it, it can be, tr- you know, sort of troubling to have a different interpretation or it, it could reflect poorly on you to have your own judgment about what that means. And, and so I think we need to get away from that. Like and adopt this this approach to interpretation that doesn't say that is certain, but leaves the possibility open that it could be true or it could not be. Our interpretation. Yes. Yeah. So that we can take this idea that we have, you know, whatever belief, propositional belief that we hold, whatever understanding we took away from a talk or from a uh, from scripture, and we can. Certainly, we can exercise faith and put it into practice as we understood it and gain, you know, take course corrections along the way. But again, are we open to course corrections? Are we open to the possibility that we may have misinterpreted it? Right. So if we always remain open to that, that's what I mean by by this skepticism. And it's this this healthy skepticism, I think, that says I may maybe my picture of who God is, for example, isn't all that there is to God. I mean, it's, to me, that's not even controversial to say, Riley. You know, do I really fully comprehend God? Okay, so I have a theology uh, or articles of faith that tell me X, Y, and Z about God, but is that all there is to God? And if I do believe that, have I not made my idea of God an idol? And am I therefore not closing myself off even to maybe getting to know God better? By direct experience, not by just by experience. propositional knowledge. Exactly, yeah. So what, what you've outlined is one possibility where we could possibly get the wrong impression about something or, or quote-unquote, be deceived. The other possibility is, is that the, the messenger isn't perfect, right? And this is, this is something that's been highlighted really by every Latter-day Saint prophet and probably every prophet before that. But I, I'm just going to pick one quote that helps to illustrate how, how this— how this plays out when we put too much trust in man or what they call the arm of flesh. So this is from uh, George Cukan in 1891. He says, Do not, brethren, put your trust in man, though he be a bishop, an apostle, or a president. If you do, they will fail you at some time or place. They will do wrong or seem to. I like that. He says seem to, right? Again, interpretation. And your support will be gone. But if we lean on God, he will never, never fail us. When men and women depend on God alone and trust in him alone, their faith will not be shaken if the highest in the church should step aside. They could still see that he is just and true, that truth is lovely in his sight, and the pure in heart are dear to him. Perhaps it is, it is his own design that faults and weaknesses should appear in high places in order that his saints may learn to trust in him and not in any man or men. And he goes on. I love that. So the point being there that I love is that he's he's not in any way calling to calling into question the office or responsibility or calling of a prophet. All he's saying is this healthy um, skepticism, even if it's just temporal skepticism, like temporary skepticism, actually protects us and draws us near to the source of true knowledge, which is the ultimate source of all things, and that's God. And so. When we, when we tie ourselves too closely to one person's interpretation of what is truth, 
then that that closed that closed off mindset not only keeps us from experiencing more but actually leaves us vulnerable to deception right yes and and again i don't want to make i don't want to give the impression that i'm saying prophets are deceiving us i don't think any of them do that particularly not intentionally but that doesn't mean we can't that be deceived yes right so it, it's more about interpretations I mean, both possibilities are true. Sure. It could be the interpretation's wrong or the message is wrong. So it could be either or, or it could be that they're right. And that's great too. The point is, is that leading yourself in a position of open-mindedness is always preferable to closing your mind. You know, the other thing is when I, when I think about the quote that you shared, Riley, is that we're to lean on God, not on our theology, because again, that's the theology is, is one of these answers, right? Not on our articles of faith, but on God. So whatever, whatever, the, whatever we think, whatever, it's not what we think. It's whatever we feel God is, our experience of God, trusting in that and trusting in that, that God is, that we are, you know, there's a, here in, in this context in our conversation, Riley, I remember actually, I think this showed up in a, a quote image from Latter-day Peace Studies recently from, that Lindsay posted, and that is this quote, this idea that the, the only thing that has us separate from God is the idea that we can be separate from God. When we can't be separate from God, we are one with God. That's the reality of who and what we are. Now, our experience may not include that. If you're not experiencing that, then open yourself up to that experience and, and realization. This is realization, right? The becoming of the reality of something that is, and that what, what is, what I'm speaking of, is that we are one with God. And so we have to, and so again, that's not articles of faith, that's not theology, that's not propositional, that's experiential. So one thing that you're, that you're pointing at here is that when your faith, your spirituality is rooted in a set of beliefs or propositions, that's not transformational. All that is is aggregating facts and ideas and quotes and, and being able to, you know, quote chapter and verse of scripture or doctrine. That doesn't make you a spiritual person. You may, you may have a lot of knowledge about what's in the scriptures, what they say, what the implications of that are doctrinally. But that doesn't improve your spiritual relationship with deity. And, it, and yet it's essential. It is the exoteric. When we talk about the exoteric and the esoteric, having that track to run on is useful until it's not. Yeah, it's until always it's useful not. So until it it's runs not. up against something, right? Yes. So let's talk about this a little bit because if there is a hierarchy we want to establish, I think it, that, and we've talked about this pre-show a little bit, it would go in this order. At the bottom not the bottom bottom, but like underneath would be beliefs, propositions, right? Just above that should be something like skepticism or investigation. Like, okay, we've got these, this set of beliefs or creeds or articles or whatever, doctrines. And just above that should be a healthy skepticism. Which doesn't mean we have to doubt the propositions themselves, but maybe it's doubting our understanding of them. I think we've said that and we're emphasizing that over and over. It's, do I really know what that means? Do, it's, not, it's not, should I believe that? Because again, belief, it's just taking and accepting a proposition. Okay, so you accept the proposition, but what does it really mean? 
And what is your actual experience of that? How does it transform you, as you've said, Riley? How does it bring you closer to God and closer to an experience of your own divinity? So let me, let me paint this picture a little bit for, for people so they can kind of visualize what this looks like. Many of those listening are either parents or they've been children to parents. Like they have, everyone has had this experience, right? And for most, especially those who grow up in the church and went through the primary program, do you remember that time? And I don't know if this has always existed, but as long as I've been a member of the church, this has been a thing. When you graduate from primary, what do you do from the pulpit? I don't know. I <laughs> I know you didn't graduate from primary. I but have, have you seen? Did I? I don't, can't remember. I joined the church when I was 11. Okay, so maybe you did. I never did. I don't know. I've seen this hundreds of times, though, from the pulpit. When a, when a kid in your primary graduates from primary into young women's or young men's, they get up at the pulpit and they, they usually, the bishop asks them to bear their testimony and quote their favorite article of faith. Or sometimes the real aggressive ones will memorize all the articles of faith and be able to quote all of them great. The overachiever. Yeah. <clears throat> but all of those propositions, whether they're true or not, let's, let's assume they're true. Okay. All, let's assume all of them are completely 100% true. Why not? Yeah. Why not? That's a great starting what spot. What do they mean? That's another question. What do they mean? Like how does a... 11-year-old graduating from, pr- from primary into young women's, how do they experience those propositions? It's not through the recitation of those propositions. It's not simply saying, we believe in God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. That's just saying a sentence. So it's not only like what do they mean, but now since you're talking about a, a what, 12-year-old? Yeah. What does that mean to you as a 12-year-old? That, that's what does what that mean at. to you as how a 24-year-old, as a 48-year-old, right? Yeah. yeah. So how do you experience these propositions? So were you right in your understanding of that at 12? Yes and no. It, right? You understood it as you understood it. Then I understood, uh, you, you know, only I, when I was a child, a I thought as a child. Yeah. Right. You were seeing through a glass darkly. Yes. Right? And eventually, what we all want to get to the point of is is where we take propositions and we investigate them. But in order to investigate, you are opening yourself up to the possibility that it's not a priori truth. Or at least not the way you thought it was. Either way. Yeah. So, you know, the, the question then becomes, how do I go about understanding, deepening my understanding of this proposition? Here's another question. I'm not 12. I'm not 24. I'm not 48. I'm 52. Now I've got it all figured out. Do I now have it right? I mean, why would I think I now have it all figured out? I'm still figuring this out. Yeah, I think what you what you can do is if you've gone through and you've stripped yourself, at some point, if you've stripped yourself self of what you think is true. Or what you think you know. Or what you think you know about truth, okay? If you've done that work, which is the emptying. It's that first step of the Beatitudes, right? It's the poverty of spirit. If you've done that work, and from there you've begun to build a foundation of things that you've come to understand through experience and investigation, you can build further upon those and accept those as truths, as your foundation. You can do that because you've done the work. But if you've never done the work of investigation and all you've ever done is just accepted things that you never put any time into investigating and really learning from experience that they were true, how do you actually know? You bring up a point that was near and dear to the heart of Al-Ghazali. Al-Ghazali did not want people blindly following tradition, what he calls taqlid, 
which is just blind following of tradition. He wants you to be invested intellectually. He wants you doing the work that you speak of, Riley, to get to know and to reason through, to actually act in a faith that is reasoned, not just blindly following the tradition, not going through the motions. There's, a, there's an intentionality about it, right? It's very much, of course, he's a mystic, right? You're going to be doing what you're doing in following the religion, right? And going through the, I say going through the motions, but it's not going through the motions, just going through the motions. It is performing the rituals, is maybe a better way to think about it, but not just going through the motions with intentionality, with not, I can say skepticism in this conversation, but it really is with, with an, a mind open, a mind open to receiving and understanding more and not thinking you already know it all. So there's a word for that that we use all the time, contemplation. <laughs> yes, indeed. So it's awareness, it's contemplation, it's, it's bringing intentionality. And so, you know, earlier we, we kind of started this hierarchy of belief that was below skepticism or, or uh, investigation, but there's something higher than that too, and that's what drives the investigation, and it's trust. And faith, you know, when, when you say drives, I think of faith, faith, Faith doesn't have to be a religious thing. What is faith? Faith is a principle of action. Faith is acting in the present for the sake of an envisioned future. Faith is the core of my being that moves me to act in any way, shape, or form. Right? Faith is what drives all of my actions, not just belief in God. All of my actions, from the time I wake up in the morning and get out of bed until the time I go to bed at night, all of this is driven by faith. And it's a principle of investigation because you don't do anything acting unless you believe there's some kind of outcome. That's what I mean by right? acting in the present for right. the sake of a possible or envisioned future. So pistis, the Greek word for faith, it's actually probably better translated as trust. Right. So anytime we act, we're trusting that there's some kind of outcome that, or hoped for outcome, right? It's the hope for things unseen, as Paul, st- Paul said. And... So that, that goes above skepticism, but it's the reason for the skepticism or the investigation is because... Into the beliefs. Into the beliefs, right? Yeah. So you're starting to see this ladder. We work up from the bottom, which is a set of propositions, and we're going we're gonna to set aside the objective truth of those propositions and just say, okay, they're They there. may be. They can be. They can be, but they're there, right. right? So that's, you might call it a hypothesis, for instance, sure. you know, and, and now... This does have a little bit of a feel of a scientific it does. method, it doesn't does it? It does have a scientific yeah. method to it. And that's okay. I mean, um, because it's methodological skepticism. It's methodological, that's what we're yeah. talking about, you know? And I think where we differ in this conversation from Descartes and Al-Ghazali, while standing on their shoulders, of course, is that in the end, we're not... Now, it's not that we don't want to reach a place where we have some kind of knowledge. It's that we believe that knowledge continues to grow and that even God continues to gain in knowledge and wisdom eternally. And so we're painting a picture of a hierarchy on the one hand, but at the same time, this repeats itself in a cycle. Because we want to, just as we understood one way when we were 12, and another way when we were 24, and another way when we were 48, we continue in a spiral of growth and of understanding more and more in depth and, and of experience, right? All, real, ultimately, it's experience that's going to make all the difference. And our experience is what then 
informs our understanding and our understanding then informs our faith which informs our actions which informs our experience and again into the cycle yeah so i want to open up a metaphor that i think for me does a pretty good job of explaining how you can approach propositional truths uh, or propositional statements i should say from the from multiple perspectives okay so i like i like weightlifting uh i think it's it challenges me. It helps me get stronger and, and more determined and, and sets me up in good habits and all kinds of, it has all kinds of benefits, right? But here's, here's one thing I've learned over the years from weightlifting is that there's, for any lift, okay, just the, the idea of lifting itself means fighting against gravity, right? And everyone in their mind tends to think, if you were to visualize what lifting is, it's always pushing something from a lower position into a higher position, right. okay? There's more than one way to fight against gravity, okay? There's the pushing against gravity from a bottom position to a top position, but there's also what's referred to as eccentric or negative lifting, where you go from a top position to a bottom position as slowly as possible. And so you're still fighting against gravity, but you're actually working a different part of the muscle, something that's not used to the being worked in the concentric in the, in the concentric part of the lift, which is the lifting from a bottom to a top position. In the same way, when we only exercise our faith to support or assent to a proposition, we're only working one half of that muscle. Okay, the part I love where this we analogy. It, it works for me because it, it just it really it rings true. To I don't my even experience. I don't lift weights, and but, I love the analogy. I hope I'm explaining it so it makes sense. But, but when you approach a proposition from the opposite position and test it in the opposite direction, you can still arrive at the same place, which is, you know, strong muscles, okay? The ultimate end will be the same, but you will have tested a proposition from more than one perspective, more than one angle, okay? More than one starting position. And so I think that people get caught up in thinking, okay, I don't want to sow the seeds of doubt. I don't want to become a doubter or a cynic. And I don't, I don't advocate for that. I don't want to be someone who goes to the gym and only does negative eccentric lifts. I want to work both sides. Okay. And by doing so, I, I arrive at a place of greater strength. I have my own analogy. Let's hear it. <laughs> if I'm driving down the road of spiritual progression... This idea that we're trying to communicate means that I am taking in all the possible interpretations, all the sources of knowledge, as Descartes and Ghazali did, to be able to look at, to scan constantly all of my mirrors, to have my eyes open, to put on my sunglasses if I need to, to make sure that I'm taking in all of the ways that I can see the road and the cars around me to safely move down there. See, I'm moving down the road. Just because I'm looking back into the rearview mirror, it doesn't mean I'm not moving forward. It's actually part of safely moving forward to look back into the rearview mirror. Have, have you ever and been to, to Germany? Have I, you ever driven I on the Autobahn? No, I haven't. Okay, I'm 14. And this is right with your metaphor, okay? I'm 14 years old, and my, my dad puts me on a plane, says, you know, you're going to go meet your family in Germany. I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. So I, I'm by myself. I fly from LAX to uh, Frankfurt. And I'm picked up by this family that I've never met before. They were cousins and second cousins of my dad or whatever. My dad was born in Germany. And, and they show, I show up and there's a sign that says Risto and they pick me up. And my very first experience with this family 
they spoke very little because they didn't know how much German I spoke, which was also very little. But they picked me up, and my first experience is getting into his, his Mercedes and driving on the Autobahn to the town of, of Werther, where they lived, uh, All right. just by Bielefeld. And we were going 125 miles per hour on the Autobahn, which was awesome. I, I think they wanted to give me that experience because I'd never driven that fast, and it was killer, right? The, the rules of driving on the Autobahn are completely different than our highway. If, if you're not keeping up, you get out of the way. It's not, there is no blocking of traffic. You have to know how to use the fast lane. Right. Americans don't know how to use the fast right. lane. <laughs> and, and you're constantly checking those mirrors you're talking about. Because if you're in that fast lane and you're not checking your mirrors, even if you're going 125, there's going to be a Ferrari up behind you in no time at all that expects you to move out of the way. That is the rule. You get out of the way. They're not going to weave in and out of traffic. They're in the fast lane for a reason, and it's your responsibility to be constantly aware of those rearview mirrors. Man, every time I drive on the interstate in the United States, I wish Americans understood this. <laughs> so if I'm going down the road, to, to show you what I mean by methodological skepticism or methodological doubt, just because I look in the rearview mirror doesn't mean I'm not going to look in the side view mirror. And just because I looked in the side view mirror doesn't mean I'm not going to look over my shoulder before I change lanes. Do I believe what I see in the mirror or put my blinker on? Right. right? It's not that I doubt what I saw in the mirror. It's that I I think there's more possible to what is than what I could see in one mirror. I need all the mirrors and I need to scan them constantly. And I need to have a healthy doubt, a healthy respect. I mean, here you're talking about, especially when you're going 130 miles an hour, um, you get it wrong, it's going to be painful. You could die. So... It's going to be a a healthy respect for the possibility that I'm wrong, that that what I saw in the one mirror wasn't right, that maybe I needed to check also the side mirror. And maybe based based on the timing, I really need to, I always look over my shoulder just in case. Hmm. That's great. I love that analogy. And I think it drives home the, the fact that, look, we're, the ultimate goal of this stuff is to arrive at a sure knowledge that comes through experience of multiple perspectives of God, of divinity, of ourselves, of the world, and, and as much as we can. So the destination is not the thing in question. It's, it's the journey. Like how, how do we go about this journey to arrive at that destination that we all want, which is as much knowledge as possible, as much spiritual experience as possible, as much transformation as possible? What's the most efficient way to get there? It's through investigation and taking in all the inputs and intent. Intent goes right in there as well. You know, when you say investigation, it reminds me that we call people who are looking into the church investigators. Why would we stop being investigators? Mm. By the way, who graduated us? When did we, right? Okay, yeah, we went to the, what's the class called? The gospel essentials class. And we did graduate to gospel doctrine. Okay, fine. We're in Sunday school now. But there's no graduation from Sunday school. It's endure to the end. Yeah, and, and anymore, all this stuff is supposed to be taking place in your home. Yeah. Which is even better because you're moving at your own pace and you can utilize whatever tools you want to without feeling like you're out of step, out of the norm. It's helped us to assume our own spiritual authority and it respects and recognizes that each individual has their own way of doing this that that might work best for them. What you called in a recent episode, spiritual autonomy. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think I got that from Jana Johnson Spangler, who we had on a prior episode. I really appreciated her perspective on that. 
and the priority she gave to that spiritual autonomy. I think it's it's not necessarily something that's disappearing. For a while, I felt like it did. With the home-centered church, I think we're getting back to that idea. With ministering, I think we're getting back to that idea of, of spiritual autonomy, of individual spiritual experience to confirm the things that we should either do or not do. Yes. It's, it's respecting the individual's relationship with God. So Riley, I didn't want to fail to mention the reason why this topic came up for us again. You know, for me, it happened because there are a couple things that came together. First, you shared with me a Maxwell Institute podcast on which Pete Enns was interviewed on his book, The Sin of Certainty. And I, don't, I, I guess you didn't know that I had already heard that podcast. You know, that podcast, I heard it probably in the year that it came out in 2016. And when you sent that to me, I just looked at it. I just stared at that link and I thought, how do I respond to this? I didn't want to just say, I've heard that. I wanted to say, I wanted to reflect him and I actually took stock. I looked in that rearview mirror and I realized how much that podcast influenced me, how much uh, my own journey of faith took on a new dimension and took on it. I went down a new road, right, with that journey of faith. And, and I kind of I got on the Autobahn for a while there. You know, I really made a lot of progress through the idea that God is more interested. This is a, what Pete Enns is saying in his book. God is more interested in my trust than in my correct belief. So I don't know if I have the correct beliefs or not, but I trust in God. I have faith in God and I act on that trust. And according to my understanding of who and what God is, which again has everything to do with my beliefs, but that's not faith, right? Faith is what makes me act in going, moving toward God. And of course, my beliefs are there. They're part of my experience. They color my experience in some way, which is why I have to be willing to be humble enough to recognize that I may be wrong in my beliefs. Whatever, however, you know, whatever the theology says, whatever the articles of faith say, whatever the propositions are, they may be. But that doesn't mean that my beliefs around them are exact or accurate or helpful. Let's face it. Ultimately, there's a pragmatic sense to this whole experience because why am I having beliefs? What are they for? Again, they're to move me in faith toward God. And if they don't move me toward God, then does it really matter yeah, what if do they're they true? Do at that point? Yeah, are, yeah. That's so, kind of we talked about that earlier. Like, what is the point of these propositions? So of I these have beliefs? a belief. Yeah. So you have it. Now what? So what? So if, if it, maybe it's correct. So yeah. what? Yeah. Right. What so does it do for me? What is what is the point? This is a bigger question, right? But it gets to the heart of this. What is the point of your religion? Mm. Of any religion, like whether you belong to this or Eastern Orthodox or Islam or what? What is the point of your religion? If it's just to memorize the people who teach your religion or create your your propositions, what good does that do you? No, it's to draw me closer to God. It has to be. Through what, though? Like, you know, like it's it's the doing. Yes, of course. And, and you only do Acting something. In faith. Right. You only do something when you trust that it's true. God wants me to trust in him. Right. And move forward on based on faith. He wants me right. to trust in him and to move. And if I don't have the right beliefs... He's not worried about that. I mean, look, even in our in Latter-day Peace Studies exegesis, nonviolent exegesis, we have said, whether on this podcast or on the Come Follow Me podcast, just because an ancient Israelite 
thinks that God, that Yahweh, right, is their warrior God. Doesn't mean God is a warrior God at all. But they're in a relationship with God. He wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to marry us. That's the whole Old Testament, right? It's the hierogamy. It's the hierogamy. It's a sacred marriage between heaven and earth. He wants to be in the relationship with us. And if we look to him as a warrior God in our poor ancient Israelite understanding or our modern American one for that matter, he's going to say, okay, I'm not your warrior God, but I'm glad you're praying to me. Let's keep the line of communication open and I'll work with you. Yeah, I'll use and your I'll, language so you sure. can understand me. You can talk about me that way. Use your symbols, whatever you got to do, but let's stay let's in this stay dialogue. Stay in this dialogue, yeah. yeah. And he's going to continue to slowly unveil himself, reveal himself to me. Yeah, and the ultimate revelation of God is in Christ. It's in the life he lived and the things that he taught. And in him, you see the manifestation. You, you see... Which, God. Which is where we get our, our hermeneutic, right? right? The cruciform hermeneutic. Yeah, the Christological. Why do I have a nonviolent interpretation? Because I think the ultimate revelation of who and what God is, is in Jesus Christ. Right. Yep. So if we've established now that really there is no point to religion outside of the things that we are doing to transform ourselves, and we're doing it with a set of propositions, and that's fine. You're testing all of those, right? You act upon them in faith, right? Yeah, testing, investigation. Alchemical language. Yeah, it's alchemical process, right? But ultimately, the grand point of any religion is transformation. And we're testing ourselves against, right? Through, with. We're trying yourself, right? We're trying, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's really a trial and... And there's a purification. It's a process. It's a process of purification. It's the alchemical forge, the crucible. And the crucible of doubt is a part of that. For Now, again, here we're talking about a methodological doubt, a tool we pick up by choice. Sometimes doubt is something that happens to us. That's a different sense than yeah. what we've been talking about. But let's remember that that too is part of the crucible. And we can trust in God, not only, in our, not only for our own sake, but if we have a loved one who is in the crucible of doubt, we can entrust our loved ones to the hands of a loving God who is going to pull them through no matter what. God wants to draw us to himself, and he has the power to do it. We can trust yeah. in that. Yeah, and, and I think that trust that we have is manifested when we feed his sheep. I mean, this is the, the commandment that he gives, he gives to Peter three times uh, post-resurrection. He's having a meal with his apostles. Uh, I think it's fish and honey or something like that. Post-resurrection. So the reason why that's important, I think, when I, when I say that and I emphasize that is because if it's the last thing he wants his people to know, it's that he wants all of his sheep fed. So we love them. Yeah. We love them. They're love in the crucible me. of doubt. If you love me, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. The other thing that came to my mind, Riley, in connection with Pete Enns and the sin of certainty is I had an earlier experience of someone exposing, someone giving a sense of, an explanation of, an exposition of doubt as a useful tool in faith. And that was Leslie Hazelton in her brilliant TED Talk, The Doubt Essential to Faith. Are you familiar with yeah, this TED Talk? Yeah, you shared it with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, she's saying that doubt is essential to faith. This isn't always 
when I share when I've shared this with people in person, they haven't always readily understood or have vehemently disagreed. So let me explain why I think that she's right in saying that doubt is essential to faith. If you know something, you don't need any faith because you know. This is according to the scriptures. The scriptures teach mm-hmm. us that if we know something, yeah. that we don't need any faith. Yeah, your faith goes it. dormant when you have sure knowledge, you have right? Sure knowledge, exactly. And, and even if it's the even if it's the veneer of sure knowledge, like the kind of certainty that we impose on ourselves right. when we think we know something for certain, the the faith, the goes, faith dormant. goes dormant. So that's, so that's a, a danger. That's Alma thirty two. That's doctrine, right? And and that's a danger, right? Yes. There's, if we Certainly. if we impose that kind of if we put our faith to sleep because we think we know, that's where the healthy skepticism comes into play, is to actually put into practice the possibility to act in faith on the possibility that we could be wrong in our understanding or that we could be lacking. We don't have to be wrong, right? We just, there's more. Is there more to God than what I know? Well, let me, let me sure open up is. this and take this to its logical end, right? Does God have faith? I mean, the lectures on faith, if you're, if you're a literal guy or a doctrinaire guy, you know, and you read the lectures on faith and it says that the worlds are created by faith, okay, if it's a principle of action, you're acting based on a believed outcome, okay, a testable hypothesis. And this is the way that God does this too, because otherwise, why do it? So in other words, God's not actually sure how this is going to turn out. My proposition is, or my, my, uh, my hypothesis is, is that God does have faith. Yes. Okay. Well, he's acting. He's, faith he's, is what moves us to action. So that's, that's my point. Like yeah. w- without, without faith, why would you act? You right. already know the outcome. Yes. If you already know the outcome, why act? Right. So, when you're fa- so if you don't have, if you don't know, then you're acting in faith because you don't know. Because if you do know, you don't need faith. Therefore, doubt is essential to faith. If you're in faith... You're also in doubt. There are two sides of the same coin. If God is the great scientist, that implies taking the, the tack of uncertainty. It implies it. Because all a scientist does is test hypotheses over and over and over and over and over until they arrive at some truth. And it may be, according to what we teach in our theology, that God's done this billions of times. He's created hundreds or thousands or millions or billions of worlds and whatever, the, the hypothesis is proven at that point, but that doesn't mean that all hypotheses are proven. Like, why keep doing it? We already know the outcome. Why keep doing it? And I don't know, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know whether it, that, that's God's project. My project is uh, being a part of God's project, right? Yeah. And, and I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm coming to sure knowledge of certain things through my own uh, testing of my own hypotheses or my own articles of faith or my own beliefs by putting them into practice, by exercising faith, by acting on them and tweaking them. Because if I act on them according to how I think they work and they don't work the way I think they work, by acting on them, I find out something more about how they do work than what I thought. Well, and I go back to something we said in a prior episode. We referenced Joseph Smith's first vision when he was told that all of their creeds are an abomination to me. Okay, and and that was the sense in which he told Joseph to join none of them. Their creeds are an abomination to me. So being certain about what we think we know about God and the nature of reality and the creation and all that stuff, 
being certain of that stuff is the thing that's being uh, an abomination. You know, to him? That's the abomination. Yeah. So right? we have there's one reading of this that says their creeds mm-hmm. are an abomination to me. Another reading is their creeds are an abomination to me. Right. So if you read their creeds right. are an abomination, now we just need creed. We need, we just new, need creeds. A new creed. Yeah. By the way, our creeds have to be right. And again, maybe they are. But what do they but the mean? The idea of a creed. What do they like mean an, though? A certainty, right? Yes. Maybe it's the certainty. Maybe that's what God is pointing to and saying certainty is an abomination. Well, that's the other reading. That's the reading right. of their creeds are an abomination yeah. to me. And that's where Pete Enns is coming from when he's saying the sin of certainty. God wants your trust more than he wants your correct belief. Right. Because again, trust, faith, same thing. He wants your faith more than your assent to a set of propositions. Yes. Because those aren't transformational. Only faith acting on the things that you believe, which is faith, only that is transformational. Just, I mean, that's, that's the definition of transformation, is acting on something, hoping that it'll turn out the way that you believe it will. That's, yeah. that's faith. So how do we put this into practice, Riley? Well, that's the key question, right? Because we've talked around what this is. But what does it look like to put faith or trust at the top of the hierarchy and submitting below that the beliefs, the set of beliefs or propositions that we've come to know as our theology or our doctrine? How do we do that in a practical sense while maintaining, you know, our, our practice in a specific religion, all right? We're Latter-day Saints. We go to church on Sunday, right? We have a theology. And when we go to church, the last thing we want to do is lob grenades in the middle of a class and get everyone flying off the handle and saying, well, that's not what the scriptures say. Like, but what we're supposed to be doing in these Sunday school classes and in our priesthood or Relief Society classes is the very thing that is usually dis- dissuaded in us. Like, yeah, don't do that. Don't call that into question, you know, because, you know, then then people are going to be thrown for a loop and you don't you don't want them to you don't want to sow seeds of doubt. You hear that a lot, right? So are we going to sow seeds of doubt then? Or what do you mean? All I'm talking about is how, when you put this into practice, what does it look like? It yeah. looks like to me, it looks like patience. It looks like waiting for the answer, not having it, being patient, waiting for it. Something. It like looks that. like like community investigation, mm. community transformation, community patience skepticism, with each other. patience with each other, patience. Yeah, meekness definitely looks like meekness because the one who shuts down discussion, this guy bugs most people. I think you know when you're having this great discussion and you're you're following the the train of logic and all of a sudden and all of a sudden some person stands up raises their hand and says this this whole conversation is apostate or whatever and then points to something in dnc or alma or it clearly says it here. clearly says right here if you just read the words that this if you read it the way i read it which is the only <laughs> way to read it right so a lot of times the best discussions get shut down by someone who wants to be the authority on this particular subject and the investigation stops the transformation stops the heuristic of faith itself stops. And that's coming from a sense of authority that's hierarchical. That's coming from a sense of authority that's... Assumed. Assumed, you know, and, and so it's going to, it's going to, it's, you know, in logic, actually, this kind of authority is a fallacy, right? I'm going, it's an appeal to authority. 
right? Whereas there's another sense of authority that is being exemplified by the members of the class who are having the discussion, which is experiential. Their authority comes from their experience. There's a dictionary sense of authority that equals experience. It's synonymous with experience. I speak from authority. I had the experience myself. Right? I can tell I can speak with authority of what it means to live in the tropics because I've lived in the tropics. That doesn't mean I have a PhD in living in the tropics. I don't have um I didn't create the tropics. I just have an experience of the tropics. But there is an authority to that. It's not the authority of the God who's the creator of the tropics. It's not the authority of some PhD who can pontificate on the tropics from an academic standpoint. It's just my experience living in the tropics. Right. So John Verveke, who, who has a series on, on the internet that's fantastic. He's a professor at the University of Toronto. He speaks of different types of knowing. And this one, this experiential type of knowing is what he calls perspectival. Like you have the perspective of having done it because you've been there. And that's not the only kind of knowing, but it's a way of knowing. And, and in many ways, because all knowing is subjective to our own process of interpreting it individually, it's really the most sure kind for the individual. Maybe not for the community, but certainly for the individual, the, the best way to know something is to experience it. And so when we shut down these voices and these investigations and these dialogues and discussions, then we just, we arrive back at the place of certainty. And usually it's just one person's the certainty. The sin of certainty. Yeah, yeah, right. So if, if we go back to this question of what does this look like? What's the, what's the action item takeaway from this discussion? It's how do we best foster an environment of, of investigation of faith, the kind of faith that implies questions, implies doubts and skepticism? How do we foster that kind of environment while maintaining a sense of, of unity and communication. I have an idea. Individually speaking, of course, I'm, I'm modeling this on the expression, doubt your doubts. Who said doubt your doubts? Uchtdorf. President Uchtdorf. At what the if, time, yeah. What if we were to doubt our certainty, the sin of certainty? What if we were to doubt our certainty? What if we understood that God really wants our trust, faith, not our correct beliefs? You know. Propositions are puny to God. Even if they're true, they're not complete. They're only partial truths. We see through a glass darkly. Any truth that we can state about God, as true as it is, isn't God. There's so much more to God than we can possibly put into a proposition or even a poem. Although including a poem would get us closer than just a proposition, even the two of them together. We can't put God into a proposition and a poem. So the way I would like to close for me is to, is to open up this idea of Zion a little bit. In our theology, we have this concept of Zion and the, I guess, the Bible dictionary definition or whatever of, of this term Zion is pure in heart. They're of one mind, of one heart. There's no poor among them. So essentially, it's unification. It's unity, right? Can we ever envision a time where unity means that there's no diversity of thought? I don't think so. Because in my mind, God, he created us as individuals. And so many of us differ from each other. Well, we all differ from each other, right? In so many ways. So how is it even possible to imagine 
a, a way of existing together that doesn't include that diversity. Unity is not uniformity. Right. This is a Richard Rohr, right? Yes. So what is unity? It's a diversity which includes mutual respect of spiritual autonomy. So you're saying I have to live in a community with someone who doesn't believe the same things as me? Or believe the same way as you do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. How can we be of one heart then and one mind? By making that respect mutual. It's a two-way street. Yeah, and, and the, the street, the, like the, the one way is, from my perspective, is a sense of humility and meekness, right? And, and from the other side... It's grace. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's grace. It's, a, it's, it's patience. A, it's a patience. It's, yeah. it's allowing. It's seeding the point. It's agreeing with thine adversary quickly whilst they're in the way. Yeah. You know, it, it's so interesting how, how this plays out and how as we grow up and become more mature, one of the ways this is manifested is that it's okay. It doesn't hurt your feelings when someone that you know or love believes differently than you do. Mm. That's a big sign of maturity. Like it's not a personal affront to you that someone doesn't practice, you know, say the word of wisdom. Why should that be? Or, or that they don't practice it the way you do. Yeah. Or, or tithing or, you know, any other number of the exoteric practices that are part of the rituals and rites of our faith. Why, why do we get offended when someone else doesn't believe the same way you do? And again, do you, can you entrust them to God? Yeah. And isn't that between them and God anyway? And isn't it our job not to judge, but to love them? Or just practice our own beliefs. Like, you know, act in faith on the things that we want to believe are true and And, just wish the best for everyone else. And I believe that God will honor each of us for doing what we believe is right according to how we believe it is right in the way that we understand it. Even if we get it wrong, just like the the God who, again, says, I'm not your warrior God, guys. So if we have the wrong idea, but we're acting in faith, God will honor us. Mm, I like that. How can he not? Yeah. It's all about the intent. You know, we've used this. Intention is so important. This archery term metaphor, the whole, you know, uh, hamartia, right? I used this in a classroom. Right. Just because we're missing the mark doesn't mean we're not aiming our best. We just missed, right? I, I played a lot of darts growing up as a kid. We had a dart board and it was, my dad loved playing darts. We played a lot of darts. I was always aiming for the target, whether it was the bullseye or the one or the, the triple 20 or whatever it was. I was always aiming at the spot I wanted to go to. I only hit it maybe one out of four times, one out of five times, right? So this is reminding me of me bowling last night. <laughs> <laughs> if we were all perfect at that, it'd be quite a boring life. It would. Sometimes I think about, you know, it's fun to watch professional bowlers or professional pool players. Yeah, someone who's really honed their skills. Then their again, you know, skills. it's just so predictable. Mm-hmm. It, it can be boring, right? So I think it's, it's fun for me to go bowling and who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> well, one thing they're not going to do anytime soon is lengthen the bowling alley. But in golf, they lengthened all of the holes because Tiger Woods was out driving everyone, you know? And so eventually people get so good at the thing that they're doing that there's that next step. Well, what's next for us? So I I think for us, we should always be stretching and that takes faith. Somebody broke that five minute mile. Yeah. Eventually four minute mile. And then then the three minute mile. Yeah. It's crazy. 
people that are running marathons in sub two hours or something. That's What's possible? Nuts. Yeah. How when, would when we you, know unless yeah. we act in faith? Yeah, and, and we're building on, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. We're building on the truth that other people have discovered for themselves and hoping that it's true for us as well. But, you know, ultimately, it's, it's this approach of uncertainty and faith that makes possible our own transformation and growth. And thanks to Descartes and thanks to Al-Ghazali, who it's easy for us to dismiss in some way, you know, to say, well, they didn't see this or that that we see without even doing any of the work that they did or even comprehending the work that they did. Just because we can read the encyclopedia article from the, the philosopher who probably also didn't do the work or understand, but they can point out the, the, the flaw in their thinking when they sacrifice so much personally. Thank you, Descartes. Thank you, Al-Ghazali. For, for the sacrifices that they made, for the faith that they exercised in the face of opposition, especially Descartes, you know, the, the, to put, and, and we're going out on, on a limb here. To, I'm not Descartes, you know, we're not Descartes. But, you know, if you, if you have your doubts about our expression of the, the utility of doubt, of the healthy uh, skepticism that we speak of that can be useful and that can be uh, edifying, that's okay. Sure. Consider it. Yeah, I mean, I think you could say the same thing in uh, a non-philosophical way and just relate it strictly to the church and say, you know, we're not Joseph Smith. We're not Brigham Young. We're not Russell M. Nelson. We're just two yahoos, you know, trying to work our way through this and have an experience of our own. Right, I thought we were yahoos. Uh, is it yahoo or yahoo? <laughs> For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week. 